After this, Jesus revealed himself, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went up aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you would not want to go. This he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. Father in heaven, we pray that you would reveal yourself to us in this preaching of your word. Give me the ability to preach it effectively. But most of all, Spirit of God, inspire us to hear and to know and to follow and to love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good evening. It is the third Sunday of Easter. Now remember, how many days is Easter? 50, yes, so good, you guys. 50 days of Easter. So we will be celebrating for 50 solid days. And there's reason for that. The resurrection is a reality not easily comprehended by the human mind. It really is the deepest part of our whole universe, the whole cosmos, if you will, the entire created order, the resurrection of Jesus. It's the, the crux, if you will, that everything hinges upon. If there wasn't the resurrection of Jesus, this world would be a far different place. But tonight, we have a, a couple of beautiful stories about men being 
being pulled up, lifted up by the risen Christ. But before we get into one of those stories, I want to talk about a phrase that we use here and there, and it's the phrase, I love you. I love you. It's a funny phrase, isn't it? Because we can throw the word love around when we're talking about maybe a great book, a great album, a certain wine or a food or a movie or places that we love to be. I love this place. I love that album. I love this memory. But whenever it comes time to say that phrase to another human being, we have a little bit of pause, don't we? For instance, Amy's not here tonight, so I can tell the story with free of any retaliation. When we were first dating, we were, I was Mr. Super Spiritual. And we were first dating. We were having a great time. It was so exciting. And I just thought, gosh, I know I'm going to marry this woman. My eyes were all googly. And we were having a blast. And we'd been dating maybe a couple of months. And of course you don't say, I love you that early. If you're Jay Wright, Christian kid, Canyon, Texas, 2000, whatever, whatever year it was. So we're having a ball and, and we're at her apartment one night. I look over and I was like, man, I just love. And I paused. I was about to say you, but before I could, my, you know, my nature took over. I said, I love being with you. <laughs> I couldn't go all the way and say, I love you. Why is that? What is it about those words or that phrase? This week, I have been a little bit obsessed with the, with the word love and the different words for love that Jesus and Peter use in John 21. And part of my reading and, and prayer and preparation led me to a German philosopher named Joseph Pieper. He's a Thomist. That means he studies uh, St. Thomas Aquinas. But he says this about love. He says, at its most basic, saying I love you means we, we're saying to someone or something that I want you to exist. Your being, your existence is good and it's delightful and I love you. And that's beautiful, isn't it? Because there's this level of approval and it doesn't mean approval in the basic sense, like I approve of you, but approval in the, in the highest sense that your existence gives me great delight and joy. I love you. Now, I want you to remember that. Now, in the restoration of Peter, you just heard it read by Chris, that phrase was uttered, but not uttered, I love you, but it was uttered in the interrogative fashion, do you love me, Simon, son of John? And we'll look at that in a minute. But the big framework that we're going to look at at this encounter, this restoration of Peter in, is that of Jesus being the one who was worthy. Did you know how many times we sang the word worthy in worship? And then how many times angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, et cetera, et cetera, say the word worthy in Revelation 5. So Jesus is the lamb who was slain. He is the truly worthy one. If there is one worthy of worship and honor, one worthy of sacrifice, one worthy to whom we can say the words, I love you. It is good (laughs) that you exist. Without your existence, I am nothing. If there is one worthy, it is Jesus. And Jesus is the worthy one who we see tonight takes those who are unworthy and he lifts them up in his love. And he gives them a task to work in his eternal kingdom. 
So let's look quickly at the restoration of Peter. But before we get specifically to that, I just want to note a few things of context. We had a whole long chapter of John 21, or most of the chapter, and a few things of context. This is the third post-resurrection appearance that Jesus has had with the disciples. We talked about two of them last week. This is the third time he appears. Now, where is he with the disciples? He's at the Sea of Tiberias or Galilee, this lake situated up in the northern region of Israel and Galilee. And where did Jesus call Peter and James and John and Andrew and Philip? And did you notice who was mentioned? He's called Nathaniel, but who is that? That's Bartholomew. Bartholomew. He's, Peter's with six other disciples, so seven guys in total. They're going out to fish, and we see Peter's a natural leader. Hey, I'm going to go fish. And they all go, oh, okay, I will too. So they all go out and fish. And notice John's subtleties, well, or maybe his, his point, uh, poignant choice of words. And at night, they caught nothing. Remember, John is this, this author who talks about light and dark, believing and unbelieving. And at night, they catch nothing. Their efforts are fruitless. But as day is breaking, they see a mysterious man on the shore. Who could this be? Now, we know who it is because we've read the whole book. We've been to church. We went to, to Sunday school. Jesus? Yes, that answer is correct. So they see Jesus on the shore, but no one re quite recognizes them, do they? Except for whom? The one that happens to be writing the gospel, John, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Also, John, who wrote the Revelation, the Apocalypse. And remember what Chris said so eloquently last week. Apocalypse isn't so much zombies and economic meltdown and outbreak of diseases. It's really not those things. Apocalypse simply means to uncover or reveal and show what is and what will be. So just a quick reminder, that, that uh, account of worship we heard in Revelation 5 is a picture of what is. Even though it's this future history, it's a picture of what is. And our worship is modeled after heavenly worship in a way. That's why I don't wear normal clothes. It's not because I have a penchant for wearing dresses. Though I'm sure they're lovely, especially in summertime. It's because in heaven, the, the people who are presiding at worship always are clothed in white. There are these robes and it's, it's like earth, but it's not. It's different. Just a little tidbit about heavenly worship. We'll talk about it more in our next instructed Eucharist coming up this summer. So they see Jesus. They don't quite recognize who he is. John sees and recognizes who he is. And he tells Peter. And what does Peter do? Notice what the detail that John gives us. He puts on his outer garment. So he was stripped for work. And, and our ear immediately hearkens to Maundy Thursday. To John chapter 13, where Jesus stripped himself for work as a slave and tied, girded himself as a slave, of his, took off his outer garment so that he could wash the disciples' feet, so that he could prefigure in this very menial, low act what he was about to do for the entire world as the Lamb of God. And so almost in a and an echo of that, Peter takes his outer garment that was taken off and stripped and he puts it on and he throws himself into the sea. Now, I, no scholar told me this, but it just makes me think of baptism. Because remember when Peter didn't want his feet to be washed and Jesus says, hey, unless you have your feet washed with me, then you have no part with me. 
And Jesus says, well, not only my feet, Lord. Sorry, he shouldn't say it like that. Not only my feet, Lord, but my head, my hands, my whole body. And Jesus says, no, 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 you're already clean. You don't need to be washed completely. You're clean, but not all of you. But I must wash your feet. And now almost in this sort of new beginning that, that we see for Peter, Peter throws himself into the sea. He wades through this, the place of chaos through water. And he, and he strives and he gets to his Lord. Now, we can only imagine the awkwardness that he must be feeling. Both exhilaration and excitement at seeing him again. He's appeared to them. Last time he saw them, peace, shalom, breathing on them the Holy Spirit. But now he remembers what happened. He remembers how he had denied him. The other disciples are left to haul the boat ashore and the net behind them. They weren't very far offshore. And Jesus has already prepared a table for them on the beach. And he says, come, sit down, have breakfast. It's beautiful. There's a charcoal fire there. Do you remember the last time we heard about a charcoal fire specifically in John's gospel? I know him not. I do not know the man. Peter's denial. So John is setting the stage. Jesus has set the stage. And one of the things that we realize when we read this passage with resurrection eyes, when we read this passage with our hearts and our minds attuned to the reality of what Jesus is doing here in this time in history, but in us now, almost 2000, or more than 2,000 years later, when we read this, we realize that he is making us ready to receive his love. He's calling us to himself. He is making us ready to hear his words, I love you, and to ask us those same questions. So even though the disciples can't tell really who Jesus is, and they dare not ask him, Lord, is it you? He presides at table with them. This is a, a clear picture of the Eucharist, though he's not using the words of institution, though he's not using bread and wine. It's a clear picture. And for the early church, it was a clear picture. There's a beautiful church on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, close to where this happened. It, the area is called Togba. And a beautiful, probably, I think it's a third century Byzantine uh, mosaic. I'm looking at Doug. Okay, maybe later we'll talk about it. But there's a mosaic and, and with fish and bread to remind of this Eucharistic feast that Jesus is presiding over, that Jesus is giving. But when we read this with eyes of resurrection, we read it in such a way as to tell us always to be ready. Yes, ready for his return, but more so ready for in what way will God show up in any given situation? We're good at shutting that down, aren't we? Oh, no, I did this stupid thing and these consequences happen and of course I deserve what... No, what way is the risen Jesus going to show up? And how have we passed over him? How have we passed him by and not recognized him? That's the reality of the resurrection, guys. God is always working in our midst. He wants us to stay alive. 
He wants us not to forget his first love. John would write to the church at Ephesus. He wants us to be ready always with good works, with his word, but most of all, just to be present to him. And all of this sets the table now for having finished breakfast, Jesus looks at Peter. And we can imagine the awkwardness that they must have felt. Is he going to talk to Peter? Is he going to say anything to Peter? Peter may have felt shame. We know that after the third denial, he went away weeping bitterly. And now Jesus addresses Peter as Simon, son of John. Immediately our minds call back to John chapter 1, where Andrew went and got his brother Simon and brought him to Jesus. And Jesus says, follow me, and you're going to be called Cephas, or Peter. Simon, son of John. Jesus necessarily takes him back to the beginning. And this is where the worthy one lifts the unworthy. Three times denied, three times restored. Think about the loving care that Jesus does this with. I'm sure Peter could have gotten by. Pentecost would have come. All the things, the gifts of the Spirit, all that would have happened. But think about the care that Jesus demonstrates to come to them in Galilee to help them catch 153 fish. But to come to Peter and just to go back to the start, just to reset. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now that word is agapeo. Do you agape love me? And that's what led me into my search for philosophers. And really, between, when it comes down to it, with all the different words that are used for love in contemporary times in Koine Greek, and words now that, you know, whether it's in German that has one word for love, Liebe, or other languages that have a bunch of words for love, no matter what it is, all these words communicate the same thing. It's that same basic statement of, I want you to exist. It's good that you are. So Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Lord, you know I do. And what does Jesus say? Good? Done? That's one? No. He gives them something. Now that he's been restored in part, feed my lambs. Peter is a clear leader. Peter is the one who confessed Jesus as the Christ. Peter is Simon Barjona. And on this rock, I will build my church, Jesus said. That's Peter. There's work to be done here. Feed my lambs. And he doesn't say preside as a savvy CEO over this vibrant, dynamic organization called my church. He says, feed my lambs. These lambs are little ones. We just sing that. Does the Messiah hold those close to him that he loves? He does. Peter, feed my lambs. Second, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. 
You know everything, Jesus. You know I love you. And Peter's response, by the way, is, I phileo you. We can remember the word city, Philadelphia, city of brotherly love, and the Phillies and the Eagles. But it's, a, it's another word for love, extreme like for, association with. I, yes, you know I love you. And Jesus responds, tend my sheep. Almost to be, be the shepherd of my sheep, tend. It's the same root as the word under shepherd that Peter will write about in his first epistle, 1 Peter. And in chapter 5, he says, I write to you as a shepherd to you under shepherds that you, be, you clothe yourselves with humility and that you f- uh, shepherd the flock of God's people this way. So these words must have taken a deep root as Jesus asked, do you love me? Yes, you know I love you. Tend my sheep. Be a shepherd, Peter. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, and a third time. Now remember, the worthy one, the one who doesn't have to do this, the one who dwells in light, inaccessible, is coming to one who is unworthy, is coming to one who has denied him three times. What does that tell us about you and me? We are never beyond the reach of God's love. It's always puzzled me, though, because there was another one who denied Jesus. Judas. He was not clean. He did not persist. He took his own life. But with Peter, we see that no one is beyond the love of God. Do you love me? He says a third time. And by now, maybe Peter understands this has to be three. Maybe he's exasperated. But it's that same sort of feeling of he wept bitterly after he denied him the third time. Lord, you know everything. And it grieved him. And, it says, and Peter says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. With the three denials and the three restorations, we see something happen. Because Jesus immediately turns the corner. The resurrected Christ, the one who is worthy, has lifted up this one who is unworthy, who is not lovable. And in Jesus' questions to Peter, do you love me? We hear Jesus saying this to Peter, I love you. I want you, Peter, to exist. It is good, Peter, that you are broken as you are. Friends, everything that we do in the kingdom of God, whether it's for church, for God, whatever it is, it all has its genesis. It all has its starting point as this moment face-to-face with God where he says, I love you. It is good that you exist. You make me happy. We heard the Father pronounce it over Jesus at his baptism. We heard it again at his transfiguration. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. We hear Jesus speak it over Peter. But for us as individuals, but also as St. Bart's, as God continues to expand our ministry, as the vision that kind of now is lying dormant, 
underground and ready for some shoots to spring forth here and there from the dirt, the, the good, loamy, rich, dark soil of East Dallas. The mission and the ministry that God will birth from us and from this place has to be from that place of love. It has to be from a place where we have a complete and total reliance and trust in that God says to us, I want you to exist. It is good that you are. And we can echo back to him that same thing. That's getting down into some deep soil because we got to uncover some layers of stuff. And we all have a lot of stuff, don't we? And that's good. One of, one of my friends told me the other day, he, he loves our church because we all have about the right amount of stuff to deal with. <laughs> he may have used another word, stuff. But God is at work. He's at work in Peter. He's at work in you and me. And he's at work in us as a community. And from this space of, I love you, I want you to exist. We can hear the words of Jesus, feed my lambs. But notice the corner that Jesus turns. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. He said this to talk about his death. And Jesus ushers, issues these final words just like in John 1, follow me. Once Peter is restored, once Peter has this connection of, I love you, Peter, I want you to exist, and I hear you saying that back to me, then Jesus can say, some bad things are going to happen. Friends, our lives can be marked by terrible things. Peter, you used to dress yourself when, we, when you were young. One day, Someone will dress you and take you where you do not want to go. Peter would be crucified upside down because he did not want to be crucified in the same manner of his Lord. But in that moment, we get this sense that Jesus is reminding Peter that this life is not all that we have to hope for. And we remember St. Paul as we recover the hope of the resurrection that he said, if we hope only in this life in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now we can look at that in one of two ways. We can turn a dull ear to it and not explore it and plunge into the depths of the mystery of the gospel or we can hear the voice of God saying to us, follow me. It's not always going to be pretty. But one day, friends, when we are with Jesus, we will be like him when we see him. And we have no idea. Our minds cannot comprehend. Our hearts cannot feel the depth of the beauty and the power. And for all eternity, we will behold God. And without any words, we will hear, I love you, in the very presence of God Almighty. Jesus is the worthy one. He lifts those who are unworthy. He calls them in his love and he gives them work to do in his eternal kingdom.
that is a good kingdom. I pray our love for him will be well ordered. I pray to lead us down a path of discipleship to truly follow him. Let us pray. God, we do love you. We call you good. When we were yet sinners, you died for us, redeeming us to yourself. We are the slaves who were ransomed. We are the dead, like Lazarus, who are brought back to life again. And one day we will be resurrected and be glorified just like you, Lord Jesus. Let our lives be marked by the love of you. We pray this in your most holy and righteous and beautiful name. Amen.